Hi, welcome. I'm Jenny Graham, Editorials Editor with the Tulsa World with... Bobby Set, Editorial Writer. And welcome. This video is also available in podcast. You can download and subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are available. And so with that, we're going to jump right in. You know, I wrote a column today that I thought was so controversial, and it had the headline, and I truly believe I would be a horrible teacher. Horrible. I mean, I would be that person that the kids would take a video of as I'm yelling at them or trying to be cool. It would just yeah, be a bad TikTok thing. star. So I just, you know, there's this call out for everyone to go and substitute. And I'm, I'm at the opposite. I don't think everyone should substitute. I think we need to just like recognize our limitations. And uh, that's fine. So I'm just curious, Bob, would you be a good teacher? Kind of doubt it. I think I would probably, well, I don't know. My heart of hearts says I'd be a great substitute teacher. I'd be a rad substitute teacher. They would just love me to death. Uh, but then again, you know, six hours, seven hours of that. Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. Oh, I would just, uh, my husband's a public school teacher. So I hear sort of, and I see, you know, what good teachers can do. I can't do that because I can barely handle my own children. The idea that I could somehow manage strangers' children. I don't know what they're bringing into the classroom, what traumas and triumphs and you know, I think for the most part, kids are okay with the substitute, but all you need is one or two, and then it kind of spirals, and, and it kind of, mm -hmm. I don't know, so I just think that in this rush to, to sub, we just ought to maybe just just take a, a step back and, and maybe think, is this really, is this really good for children to be in the classroom? You know, this, and this comes from uh, Governor Kevin Stitt had an executive order where he, the executive order allows state workers to go and substitute in classrooms and they get their state pay and this is supposed to keep schools open because basically all the teachers and a good number of students are homesick right so i know my first reaction was that was i didn't know we had so many state workers that had nothing to do <laughs> and i'm being sarcastic um but i mean there are some flaws with it i mean i think with our editorial we pointed out and i tried to point out in the column that first of all a federal background check, which is required, is going to take four to six weeks. It right. costs around 40 to 50 bucks. You know, there's, it takes people away from the jobs that they're doing, which is everything from, you know, investigating child abuse to, you know, processing driver's license and unemployment claims. Mm -hmm. And, and so I don't know. I just, I just think that that's probably not the answer, but, but that, that was my reaction. What was yours, Bob? It's kind of like one of those things, I think, where people are sort of talking at a restaurant and then just drawing something up on a napkin and say, hmm, this could work. Let's try it. So I know that's probably a little simplistic on my part, maybe a little sarcastic on my part. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things in here that you might want to run by the lawyers. Uh, and I can remember <clears throat> a reaction of a a friend of mine who's a caseworker for DHS, and she's like, yeah, that ain't happening for me. I got plenty enough to do right now with the caseloads I've got. You got to imagine uh, as lean as state government has been lately, people have uh, plenty to do. Yeah, we've never been a state that's overhired in state employees. I mean, I know there's the stereotype, but at one point in my family, I had like three uncles, 
four aunts and my mom, they all work for various agencies of state government. And I never remember any of them having a bunch of extra time or, you know, and they were good in their, their profession. Like, I don't think, I love my Uncle Billy, but there's no way Uncle Billy is going to go into a, a, a middle school class and be able to handle it. He was a he was a Department of Ag guy. He inspected poultry plants, and he was good at it. I would not want him to, and I'm sure my 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 daughter would not want him necessarily in her algebra two class. So, hey, and the same, yeah, the same reason why you wouldn't want me teaching trigonometry or calculus or physics. Yeah. you're probably going to have the same thing happen for, oh, I'd say about maybe 97% of all state workers, provided they got the time. Right. And, and you know, and the, and the problem is also this isn't subbing for a day or two. It, this mm -hmm. pandemic is, is kept, it keeps teachers out for a minimum of a week if they're, if they're asymptomatic or, little, or few symptoms. There are some teachers that are getting COVID and they're out for months. So we're talking right. long-term subs. So you know, not everyone can just jump in and do it, but the minimum you know, we're looking at three or four weeks of a surge. Yeah. Minimum. There is a thought that the governor's coming up with something, give him credit for that. But I, I'm with you that it does seem like it wasn't checked out. A, a story today said that the uh, the union for the state employees wasn't conferred with. And so I, I do kind of wonder like how much this was vetted. Uh, be, and, and the other issue is a lot of thousands of state workers are paid for by the by federal money for specific programs. I'm I'm guessing I'm not an attorney, but I'm pretty sure the federal government's not going to be cool with their dollars for that program being used to then sub in a state classroom. Yeah. So I think there, there's some issues that just weren't worked through that, you know. But uh, but moving on to state government, mm -hmm. you wrote a really good piece about you kind of laid out the the tension and the strain between really Governor Stitt and the, the tribes. And and Stitt represents the state's leadership. So you know you would include Attorney General John O'Connor, which has filed lawsuits. What what prompted you to write that and what were the, the key takeaways that you wanted to, to make in that? Well first thing I can remember is back in November um, uh, Chief Hoskins with uh, the Cherokees he had tweeted out some stuff saying, and he wasn't talking about necessarily a tribal issue. He was talking about uh, the vaccine mandate resistance that we've seen from the governor's office. And I was like, oh, okay. So we've got, uh, we've got tribal leaders now weighing in politically on something that doesn't directly deal with the conflicts that are happening between the tribes. Fast forward to this week and we're having our Michael Buffer moment. Do you know who Michael Buffer is? I do not. Tell me. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> got a WWE reference? Yeah, boxing. More of a boxing. Or boxing. Okay, yeah, got me there. It has definitely escalated a little bit. You uh -huh. know, first we hear that the tri three of tribal leaders of uh, three of the biggest tr tribes in the state saying uh, we probably need another guy in here. And then we have the famous MLK speech that uh, the governor gave, where he was likening. Uh, the McGirt decision to something and being despicable and thinking that saying that he would find that Martin Luther King would find the McGirt decision despicable and so forth and so forth. And we have just now gotten to the point. It's like, yep, it's definitely 2022. It's definitely election season. And I think you're going to see, you know, individual tribal members and leaders have given their thousands. The tribes have given their tens of thousands to different campaigns including Mr. Stitt, I'm having a feeling uh, that's going to go the other way. 
I don't know how much that's going to move the needle in terms of individual tribal voters because it's not a monolithic vote. Yeah, it's, but it's gonna you're going to start picking some fights. You're picking some fights with some guys that got some muscle now. So it's going to be interesting. Now you've re remind me, and I know tribes have always because people that that live here they are, you know, they are tribal citizens, and they are mm -hmm. also Oklahoma American citizens. You know, we mm -hmm. we recognize dual citizenship for tribal members, and that's been established by the the U.S. Supreme Court long ago. Um, actually, not that long ago, is in the 20th century that that they were allowed that allowed dual citizenship and so it's it's the tribes have always they've never been so directly involved in politics in this way that not as a tribe they've had individual tribal leaders be involved in Oklahoma politics but not so much as a tribe I mean am I right on that or is is there some history of of tribes sinking money into state Campaign. I think they what they have, but they've always done what a lot of what corporations do is they hedge their bets. They'll give some money here to this guy and they'll give some money to that guy and they're spreading a little bit of the money around and they've taken a much quieter uh, approach to past campaign seasons. Um, everything is indicating that this time around that ain't going to happen. And yeah. the difference between Oklahoma tribes now between say what they were in the 1990s is these organizations have money. They've yeah, got their right. own money and they got a lot of it. And if they want to spread some of that around, if they want to do big TV, radio, print ad buys, mm -hmm. uh, if they want to prop up some other campaigns that are running contrary to officials that they don't like, they can do it. And they may be more vocal about it now, more upfront about it now than they've ever been. It'll be interesting because a lot of... Uh, Activity is a lot of the investments that tribes make are in rural areas. Yep. And that's where um, the incumbent governor, Governor Stitt, has a lot of support on rural it areas. It will be interesting to see if that is influencing at all, um, because mm -hmm. it's, it, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's kind of interesting. But, you know, we, we do have the legislature coming up and uh, mm -hmm. got some fun stuff already being proposed. We've got the, uh, and I, I want to say they're, they're just these laws that, I hope don't go any anywhere, but uh, you never know that there. But one that caught my attention recently. Well, one we did editorialize on, which and this is actually good news, was it was a senator Tom Dugrat of Stillwater had proposed some restrictions to the open records laws that it was to restrict who could access it. They were going to double fees, add fees. It was really putting up some obstacles. And it was going to allow uh, law enforcement to not include race and gender on those they arrest. And so we took an edit the editorial board. Obviously, we're against this. And what was interesting about it, and I got to give credit to the Stillwater News Press, um, Ashlyn Huffer, I think is her name. She's a reporter who followed up on this. And good job, local journalism. She talked to him about it to get like, why, why, where is this coming from? And it came from a lobbyist. And there, there was, and he said that the, the lobbying group, the Taylor group out of Oklahoma City, assured him that they had conferred with, you know, the advocates of, of open records, which was not true. Mm -hmm. The Oklahoma Press Association, FOI Oklahoma, comes out of nowhere. And, uh, and once he got feedback and this pushback, he backed off. And so he had, the, the senator has said that it, it's, he's going to pull back on that. He didn't realize there were so many problems and he gets it. And so, Good, good news can, can, can come about when constituents speak up. But I mean, what is it? It's like every single session, 
the Open Records and Open Meetings Act gets attacked. And it's just like, what's your take on that? Because I just, and I, we warn lawmakers every year, there will be agency heads or lobbyists or people will come to you and they will say, hey, we love transparency. We love open records, but can you just exempt this? Can you just change this because national security or it's makeup, you know, it's too hard to do, make up your reason. And it drives me crazy, but but I mean, what do you think, Bob? I mean, we're, we're both in professions where we depend on this stuff. I got two takes on that is one, ever since 9-11, uh, government in general at every level has tried to become more secretive, mm-hmm. close things off, close access. Uh, it used to be if you wanted records and people knew these were public records, you got them right away when you asked. And it is not like that anymore. It is sometimes months long effort to get even the most basic things that belong to the public. These are things that we are entitled to see by law, but the barriers keep going up. And this was going to be yet another barrier to that. And now, you know, I think a lot of times what they're doing is they're, they're trying to mute the press, but it's not just us, it's anybody who wants access to that kind of stuff. So it really is a, an attack on transparency, no matter what they say. Second take I would have, and this goes back to the thing that you're talking about with the lobbying organization. It is mind boggling to me, uh, and this has been a problem for many years, you know, at least 15 or more years, how many laws are not even written by lawmakers. They are written by lobbyists. Oh, I would say most. It's cutting... Cut and paste legislation too is another problem. Yeah. Sometimes done at the national legis- national level, and you just substitute a few names and a few numbers and a few phrases here and there to tailor it to your state, and boom, there you go. And too many lawmakers just sign off on these things because that's what they're told to do to support whatever it is that they're supposed to be supporting that day. We have lost a lot of expertise and a lot of independence among legislators to actually do the job of legislating. So it doesn't surprise me that you had a situation where the guy said, okay, yeah, I'll do that for you. Well, this is what we're supposed to do without so much as even looking at it, sticking your name on it, and then finally getting into the nuts and bolts of it when you're called on. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't realize it was that bad. My bad. Mm -hmm. That's Oklahoma lawmaking. And it's probably, like you said, probably a problem in every state legislature in the country. Well, I'm so we're starting to see some laws pop up from Texas. There was the, I forget yes. who proposed it. I mean, I have a couple of, I can't remember, but it's the one where they would ban library books in schools and parents could sue. That came out of Texas. I mean, this yeah. is, when I say cut and paste legislation, it's, it's not new. They just go from state to state to state. Yeah. And that's not really how we should be governing in a state. I mean, you should be like, what are our problems? And let's fix those problems. But we have so many bills that are a solution looking for a problem. And it's just, yeah. you know, and speaking of that, Shane Jett came up with a, uh, some legislation that I'm still trying to wrap my head around, but it's basically he's triggered by the phrase social emotional learning. And he wants this bill, and I've read it a couple of times, seems to want to ban any efforts for social emotional learning in schools which makes no sense because that's part of the school mission is 
teaching kids things like getting along. I mean, to me, the, the opposite of social emotional learning is to be antisocially ignorant. And that just seems, that should be the name of the law, the antisocial ignorant law. That should just be what we call it. Um, but I, I, is this something new? Did I miss something? When did social emotional learning become a, a, the boogeyman of something? I mean, I don't understand the problem. I honestly, this is kind of came out of left field for me too. And I don't really fully understand what the motivation behind it is. Um, it's gotta be some like, it's gotta be some right culture war thing. Something. I don't yeah. know. I mean, that's, and that's what I'm getting at. It's like, when was this a problem? We want our kids to have social emotional maturity. This has been done since, I mean, 40 years, 50 years. That's what teachers do. You teach kids to mature emotionally because right now we've got a lot of kids in trauma and we have school shootings. We have these things. We want kids to be able to learn to deal with their feelings. Should be something we encourage, not discourage. I got to wonder sure. if this has got to do with some sort of anti-woke thing. But it's, it's really hard to decipher that. It's kind of like how the, the anti-CRT bill was when it first came out. It was like, well, I'm, you can see what they're saying, but then you know sort of what the intent is. So I kind of wonder if this is one of those deals where it opens up this high degree of latitude to... Anyone that gets a... Yeah, no, I don't it's, know. and it goes back to just distrusting teachers and disrespecting what they do. And it, yeah. it's, you know, that's not been a problem. You know, there was, there was an, another uh, bill that was written about today. Uh, Representative Marie Turner would like the voters in Oklahoma to decide whether or not to have the death penalty, which I find intriguing because I don't know what the latest polling is on support for the death penalty in the state. I mean, the assumption is everyone's for it or the majority's for it. I don't know how true that is. I don't know. Um, I would be intrigued by that. To, to have just an up or down vote, it would be expensive. I think I wish there were a different way to do it. I don't know yeah. if we have to vote on everything. We do elect our lawmakers to make decisions. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of that? I mean, you think that's something we ought to do? But vote on well, whether this, this comes on the heels of a of a different uh, state question that sort of hardened the state's position on the death penalty, made it a little bit more set in stone. I don't know if attitudes have changed that much since then. I think that was just a few years ago, um, but they may have. And there's a there's a growing interest uh, within criminal justice reform to take a hard look at the death penalty, because we do know enough people have been wrongfully convicted, and it's not a stretch to believe that you have some people who have been convicted and sentenced to die that may not be good for that crime. And the last thing the state wants to do is get into the business of killing people that did not deserve that penalty. So between that and overall feelings about the death penalty, I'm not sure it's quite as strong as it used to be. Um, if I were to make a guess, if you somehow did get enough names on a petition to get that thing up there, I don't know if Oklahomans are willing to give that up yet, but... I guess you never know till you try. I don't know. Well, I think that the, the legislature could put something on the ballot too, which is, I think, what she's True. trying to do. So I don't know. It, it would be interesting. And I, I'm with you. I'm not sure where the overall take is. I think there's less appetite for it than there used to be. 
because there have been so many wrongfully convicted people. But I also see an issue in DOC, and we've written about this, is the life without parole gives some sort of um, comfort for people who don't like the death penalty, but don't want to, uh, but want to lock someone up. But I, and I think that that probably deserves some scrutiny too, because when you think of life without parole, that is, I mean, that's harsh. That is, um, you know, I think, and we've, we have a lot of people in for that. And, and when we looked at it a few years ago, they're not all there for, for murder. They're there. There were a couple of arsons. There were some things that you would think not, uh, you know, a couple of, I think there were some drug dealers in there. Um, so that probably needs to be examined as well. If we're talking about criminal justice is, is the overuse of life without parole. So I'm just throwing that out there because it got my attention a few years ago and I couldn't get it. I couldn't get anyone else interested in it at the time, but um, just because when you think about life and death, and it's it's pretty cruel to lock up someone behind bars for till they die. I mean, that's it's definitely that, a penalty. Does the crime fit fit that? So right, it does need to be that for it. It does need to be for the most serious offenders. Yeah. So the another set of bills that were proposed, uh, Senator Julie Daniels out of Bartlesville. This caught my eye because it the, the bills would give the governor more power when it comes to appointing boards and uh, appointing judges specifically and the health-related boards. And we already have given the governor an immense amount of power. We have right now, the governor has more power than at any point in state's history. Because if people remember, under the last governor, under Governor Fallon, the Citizens Oversight Boards of the Health Department and the and DHS, voters approved that change to take, because those used to be overseen by citizens appointed by various branches of government, and they hired and fired the agency head. So those two huge agencies were put under the governor, under Fallon's time. And then in 2019, Governor Stitt approved five approved bills that the legislature passed that put up five other big agencies under his authority, under the governor's authority to hire and fire the agency head. And that was prisons, um, mental health, juvenile justice. I forget the other ones. You might, I can't remember off the top of my head, but, but it basically, I think that in charge, the person in charge of Medicaid, you know, health, so all these are now controlled by the governor. So the buck stopped with whoever's in the office. And so what this does is that the judges that are appointed, we have one of the best systems for that in the nation. We have a judicial nomination committee that comes up with the list of people they think, and these are, you know, the, the committee is made up of, of lawyers from different places. And the idea is we're, they're vetting to make sure that the judges have the kind of credentials that you know, attorneys across Oklahoma feel is needed. And then the list forwarded to the governor and then the governor chooses from this list, which is really better than how we do even the Supreme Court nomination, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's worked well for us. I mean, there's some issues here and there, but for the most part, we have not had any scandals with judges. Everyone seems to be happy with it. And what this bill would do is just get rid of that and just allow the governor to appoint whoever he or she wants with <coughs> confirmation. Mm -hmm. And I don't see why. And the other would, all the health-related boards, the uh, right now, some professional groups like the Oklahoma Medical Association and different groups have a say in the process for who is on that. 
And that would take all of that away. So no physician organizations would have a say into who sits on boards like health, Medicare, all that. So I had sort of that knee-jerk reaction of, wait, you know, we don't need to be giving away more authority. I like the idea of our branches of government having different say. Um, I mean, which, again, I'm throwing it up to you. Uh, my take on it is, is it's bad for Oklahoma in the long run. And I don't know where it's coming from, but I just, I, you know, I like, I like having a little bit more voice at the table in these processes. There is a, a tendency that we've seen lately to try to streamline government. And I think that's sort of the cover that you're getting to this is we are streamlining government. We are making it to where we don't have to have all of these different layers to get things done. Um, now, is that truly what's going on or is it more of a type of thing where we're trying to follow a national trend of centralizing executive power? And I think that's what you got going on. When Governor Stitt first got into office, there was a lot of uh, resistance within the legislature to do this um, because lawmakers had a lot of influence in, in how these nominations went down and these hirings and things. My, this is what I'm wondering right now. We're seeing a bill like this come up. Is it to the point where lawmakers see the coattails of Kevin Stitt, who will be heavily favored to win re-election, as being so strong that they kind of feel like they need to go along with it? And will they support uh, Julie Daniels' bill? Or are they going to buck again? I want to watch that and see how that goes down because yeah. we've it's been no small thing between the conflict between not just individual lawmakers and not just Democrats, but Republican leadership in the state legislature have butted heads with the governor on these issues. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how it's going to go down this time. Do yeah. they still feel the way they did two years ago and one year ago, or are things changing where they now? feel they have to get on board with the program. Well, we, you know, remind everyone, <clears throat> things change. This, this current governor is not always going to be the governor. And so we have a yeah. Republican dominated legislature. Well, are they going to be happy with maybe there's a, a Democrat governor sometime? Are they going to be yeah. happy ceding that kind of control to a Democrat governor? I mean, we can have, it's, it's not, you know, unforeseeable that something like that would happen. But my concern also, and with these change with citizen from citizen oversight boards, I, I covered DHS for a few years and they had meetings every month and we had statistics that were given out on child abuse to foster care, to food stamps. And there was a, and those members really held the agency head accountable and everything and all policy decisions were made in the open. People could come and address the, the board. Now, nothing. Because when you go from citizen oversight boards to being responsible directly to the governor, there's no public meeting on things that are happening in these agencies. So what was once a very open process of what was happening in DHS, I, it's not there. If you have a problem with DHS, you don't have a public forum by which to go and air your complaints. And I'm sure that's the same with all those other boards that have come around. So True. there are some public boards there and they will approve some policy, but it's mainly for 
they don't really have power to make the kind of changes with the agency head because the agency head is only answerable to the governor. And so, you know, I, I'd say I've, I've seen a change in transparency with those, with just at least with DHS. So that's what concerns me. And I just, you know, maybe I'm re reflecting more of the early Oklahoma founders because those people, they, we voted on everything. When you look at the founding of Oklahoma, they were voting on, the funniest one was there was a vote on assistant mine inspectors. I mean, they voted on everything. They didn't trust any authority. So the centralizing government, government makes sense, but I just don't think you ought to, we ought to be so quick to seed control. But, but you're right. We'll kind of see how that plays out. Um, so we can't let a week go by without talking about COVID. Everyone, you know, it's funny. So, and we have this discussion every week, do we not, Bob? Yep. Like COVID fatigue, we're right there. But it's oh, yeah. so important and it's killing Sorry, people. It's shutting down businesses. One of the, the interesting, um, I was listening to the city council. There was a city council moment, I guess, a discussion of COVID and transparency and information. And Tulsa Councilor, I think it was Kara Joy McKee, had said that her constituents were wanting a way to find out more information and accurate information and where that kind of, you know, pushing for that at the local level. But Councilor Connie Dodson, I believe it was, said that she's hearing the opposite. Her constituents are tired of it. They don't want to hear about it anymore. They don't want to, you know, they just, the opposite. And I think that was such a good summation of where we are. We yeah. have a certain amount of population that can't get enough of it and want more of it. And a certain amount that are like, keep my head in the ground. Don't look up. <laughs> and don't look I up. Don't, yeah, I was like, don't look up. Great movie, by the way. Everyone should see it. Um, and, and I just don't know where we are on this. I mean, what, where are we going with this, Bob? What's going to be next week's COVID story? I mean, what is it? Mm. What, what's our motivation to, for people to, you know, right now for me, the bar is super low. <laughs> just, just don't throw an Omicron party. Just don't do <laughs> exactly, that. Yes. Try to get sick. Let's stop. <laughs> let's, let's just not do that. Um, you know, maybe leave the saliva out of the parishioner interaction thing at church. Um, oh, yes. But, you know, I mean, all seriousness. This is a, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about this being a 12 round title fight because that's what it is. And we're a few rounds into it and we're tired. Because we, we're so accustomed to being able to do what we want, when we want, how we want, where we want. And folks were thinking, well, if we didn't flatten the curve in two weeks, then nah, I give up. And it's like, well, you know what? You might give up, but you're still going to keep getting punched in the head. It's still going to box you in the ear because COVID's not going anywhere. So... I like, I like that you get in a lot of boxing metaphors, by the way. I can't help it. I can't help myself. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll but, try not to go too far into the weeds on combat sports here. But uh, well, well, COVID is, well, now that our universities are back without uh, any sort of vaccine or mass mandates, yeah, it's going to watch Oklahoma City or watch Oklahoma City, watch Norman and Stillwater. Their cases are yeah. going to go up. I mean, it's going to, it's <laughs> colleges are already breeding grounds for viruses. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, for sure. Uh, but, you know, we're probably a, a couple of weeks away from our peak here in Oklahoma. It's it's starting to head down on the coasts, but it's working its way into the middle of the country. We had, 
I think yesterday, like over 13,000 new cases. Mm -hmm. Our previous record in, during Delta and last winter surge was in the 4,000s. Um, the sheer volume of cases pretty much guarantees that we're going to see some really high death tolls, even though Omicron is case by case, on average, less severe than, say, Delta was or some of the other variants. But yeah, we're in for another ride on this thing. And I would just, I, you know, with all the different debates, I would say, I would just tell people, hey, just buck up. We've got some things that we got to do to make sure that we don't make more people sick than we have to. Mm -hmm. So just, just do that. It's not yeah. that hard. And it's, it's, I was in a quick trip, a busy quick trip, and I was the only one wearing a mask and I was that person, but you know, we just, we have to do what we can to, to, you know, keep everyone on, keep everyone healthy. And I, I yeah, I'm, I'm, no COVID I, parties. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, it's one of those few areas where I'm almost out of words <laughs> and that's, that's rare for me. Yeah. <laughs> so on the good news, Oklahoma is get or Tulsa specifically our levies are going to look pretty in a few years we get 137 million dollars that no one expected to get Biden administration announced that uh and our levies are not not great I mean it's I think yes. it's like 10,000 people behind the levies and they were like built in 1945 and it's it's looking kind of rough over there um on the levies so yeah, I we're lucky know. they held up in the last big flood <sighs> That's one thing Mayor G.T. Bynum had, he said the floods should have been a huge wake-up call about these levees because we were lucky. And sure. that's 10,000 people living behind there and then another about 10,000 who work or go to school there. So, uh, and it was in the, um, remind me, Bob, was it the continuing, it was an appropriations bill in September, I believe, mm -hmm. that was passed. One of those keeping the government open bills. Right. And... Uh, <laughs> Interesting, and Kevin Canfield wrote the story that, and I will say, Senator Inhofe has been one of the biggest champions for infrastructure in Oklahoma. I mean, if we have so many highways and bridges and roads and, and things because of Senator Inhofe, and he had been pushing for this for years and had put it on the priority list for the U.S. Corps of Engineers, but he voted against the bill. So yep. I don't know if that, and, and we're not really sure what happened with that, Um it was, it could have been just, you know, blind partisanship. We're just voting against everything Biden. Or maybe there was a reason that he didn't know the project was in there. You know, I, I don't know why you would vote against the project that you've been pushing for for years. But, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but he did, he was there, said it was a good day to be an Oklahoman. And, um, and yeah, I think everyone's celebrating. That was kind of cool. Well, it can't hurt. I mean, like you said, the, the flooding that we had a couple of years back, that could have been much more disastrous than it was. If you went downstream of the, in the Arkansas River, uh, in the further inner eastern Oklahoma and in Arkansas, it, it got really bad in some of those places, very damaging. So, yes, that's a huge priority. I mean, you can just ask any city that's dependent on levees how big a deal something like that is into keeping people safe and dry in terms of loss of life, loss of property and things like that. To get that is, is great. If you got on social media after uh, Senator Inhofe and uh, Representative Mark Wayne Mullen started trumpeting the fact that that 137 million was coming, people were ready to pounce. They were like, but you <laughs> well, voted against it. Well, and that's so, going to come up because 
you know, our yeah. congressional delegation voted against, and that was just, now Tom Cole did vote for that particular bill, uh, but the infrastructure bill, our congressional delegation all voted no. And yeah. so as we get projects, I think it's going to be, you know, people are going to have to remember, you know, if you voted against it and you're going to be at the the groundbreaking or the the ribbon cutting, it's probably going to get brought up, but, you know. Well, we'll a little bit. Well, but I still want them to go get that money for us. That's oh, yeah. past. Let's bring it back to Cloma. So, Bob, do you play golf? Completely off the subject. Uh, I play golf rarely and badly. Do you play at the city courses by any chance? I haven't yet. Well, we have a, a an op-ed this Sunday written by Ken McLeod, who's uh, he's knows all things golf, and he is going to talk about how our Tulsa city courses need some help. And I'm not a golfer. My knee-jerk reaction is like, really? Investments in golf? Do we really need that? And I'm coming around to it now mm-hmm. because it's an amenity that if we're going to be a vibrant, robust city, we need vibrant, robust amenities like golf courses. So, um, you know, I find myself when I'm defending golf courses, I feel a little weird about it because it's not really usually my thing. But but Ken McLeod's making a, a a very good argument on things the city could do and partner with in that. And I think it's been more than a decade since the city's sunk in anything of note and maybe longer. So are you for golf courses or are you for... You're the hot, you're the outdoorsman here. Yeah, here's my here's my take on that. Is it gives people another opportunity to get outside, stretch the legs, exercise a little bit, play a sport, compete, whatever. I think that's great. Um, but golf itself, as the as a game, has changed a little bit. Uh, used to be very much a country club game, but there's a high degree of participation in high schools. And I think when you saw Tiger Wood take off, uh, Tiger Woods take off a couple decades ago, I guess, he brought an element to that where it was like, well, hey, there's a guy that doesn't look like he's just wearing polos and chinos all the time. This is a, you know, kind of an everyman sort of guy. And it made it to where the game was a lot more accessible. So you're seeing a lot more people play it that don't fit that country club demographic as much anymore so hey yeah let's bring it out to the people mm-hmm. and public golf courses are the, are a good way to do that you know not everyone can afford to play at uh, southern hills but they should have a nice place to play yeah and we do I'm have some good it. county well and like we do have a good county course you know with la fortune one of the mm-hmm. things that uh he he had told me when i was talking to him about his op-ed i said well what if they shut down let's just say that the, the city says we're not going to do this and and he said, well, the only other public places are the counties. And he said there were a hundred, about 100,000 rounds of golf played at the two city public courses. He said there's no way that the other courses could absorb that, that amount. And his argument is if the city would improve the courses, because right now they're pretty, and even the, the pictures I saw didn't look great either, um, that we would attract even more, that it could as it's a, it should be a, a revenue generator, but it hasn't been. And, and it's one of those, which came first? Did people, you know, people aren't going to, the people leave because the courses weren't maintained or, or what? But I think that we probably need to invest in it just to see, you know, if you build it, will they come? But, but I'm, a... I've, I've, I've come around to wanting the, the, 
just as a Tulsa and wanting good things for Tulsa, I think it's something that Tulsa has to have. This is a Sunbelt state where you can play golf uh, yeah. four seasons. <laughs> yeah, so, pretty much hey, all time now. Yeah, you um, can play that sport four seasons, so I think we should embrace it. So he, he makes an interesting argument, but, but while you make a point to be outside a lot and you're like climbing mountains or something, I don't know, you do crazy stuff. You crazy go stuff. on trails. If you don't follow Bob, he will like have a picture of a snake on a trail that he's running going, look at this. Happen. And it does not make anyone want to go on that trail. I do not <laughs> want to go out and do that. If you show me, hey, look, there's a bear. No, not going to go out. So uh, snake was just a nice little buddy. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going. Yeah, I want to know exactly where that's at. But what I'm doing are things like Wordle. Have you done Wordle? Have you gotten into this? You know, I'm. I am not a joiner. Oh, but you got this is word. This is letters. This but is, I got sucked into Wordle. Yes. Have you figured? Here, here's my thing. And Wordle is awesome. Everyone try it once. It's a it, and I I do Wordle followed by the New York Times spelling bee with and then the um, the mini crossword. The mini crossword's great, and my my uh, fastest is two minutes and like thirty seconds doing the mini yeah. crossword. It's freakish. But on Wordle, my question is: Do you have like a perfect first word that you start with? Gosh, not really. Um, I'm looking just, for a perfect first word. I think like uh, it's got to have a certain number of letters. It's like you know when you're doing that at home and you're watching, you know, spin the wheel or whatever. Um, there's there's a friend of mine who does it. She's very active on Twitter, and she changed her handle to say something in the effect that her her first word is ratio, which I thought was kind of funny. Even that's Twitter, not bad. You have the T and the R because you're trying. I gotta get enough words. So I want to hear from from people on this who are listening to this. Email me what the perfect first word is because I'm looking for that because I want to be able to get it in two tries. I've yeah, got I'm it in four three or five tries. line guy. Yeah, I want. I I I've done it. Usually in four, I got a three a couple of times. I want to do it in two, so I need that perfect first word. And so I do want to end it telling people to please email us. Please engage. Tell us what you want us to talk about. Tell us what you want us to look into. Um, our emails are really easy to remember. It's our first name, dot last name, at TulsaWorld.com. So that would mean Jenny.gram at TulsaWorld.com. Bob.Doucette at TulsaWorld.com. And please, uh, if you get outraged about something, we'd really love you to write a letter to the editor in 250 words. And you can send that to letters. Is it letters at TulsaWorld.com or go to the website and you can find it at TulsaWorld.com backslash submit letter. And send that to us because we'd love to hear from you. And with that, any last thoughts, Bob? Um... Make sure uh, clear your head for Wordle. <laughs> Sun is out. It's a beautiful day outside. Get outside. Make sure it's there. And, it's uh, yeah, that's right. Make sure you're dressed for it. And, man, just uh, keep in touch with us. Tell us what you want to hear right. about. And, and I will ask one more for, thing of our, of our, uh, our viewers and listeners we would like to hear what you what our podcast should be called because we've been told oh yes the world opinion is lame i have to admit it's a little lame so i'm thinking bob and jenny save the world jenny and bob solve world's problems i don't know i need to we need some help so put on your headline writing uh ideas and and email that to us too so we'd love to hear from you so yep. 
with that, everyone have a good week and thank you. Peace.